Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Welcome to the Determined Tooth Podcast. We're going to be doing something a little bit different tonight. Rob, explain to us what that looks like. Tonight, we want to kind of give you a little glimpse of some of the future episodes that we're going to be discussing. One is how to interpret the scriptures. Uh, number two, understand what the kingdom of God's all about. Uh, number three, the depth and beauty and richness of the gospel. And so a lot of times we read the stories in the Bible and we think of them in a simplistic way. And what we want to recognize is actually, if you think about this, there's a lot more depth going on when we learn how to ask the right questions. So oftentimes we don't, re- we don't read things carefully enough. And so we miss the kind of questions that Mark or the gospel author or the biblical writer wants us to ask. And so if we learn how to stop and kind of ask the right questions, we might be able to gain more insight from it. So what we want to look at in this episode is kind of looking at the story of Mark 12, where they come to trap Jesus by asking him these trick questions and kind of let's explore the depth and riches of this and going, hey, look, something else is going on here a little bit more deeply that reflects on what the gospel is, what the kingdom of God's all about. And when we unearth that, the scriptures all of a sudden come alive and it's like, whoa, that's phenomenal. That's awesome. And so that's kind of what we want to point out. Awesome. So let's jump back into chapter 12. Yeah. And leading up to that, by the way, I was reading from the ESV. What, what translation do you primarily read from? I, I look at the new American standard. That's actually, that's actually a good point. I look at the new American standard. That's just the one that I had from the 1990s uh, back then, but I recommend if you're going to do any biblical studies that you get a good translation, like the new American standard, the ESV, which I'm not as high on, but it's mm-hmm. still, it's still up on the same level. Or maybe the Net Bible mm-hmm. is one of the top three translations. The reason why I say that is because one of the things that we want to talk about is how to ask the right questions. And one of the things that we, we know is that when an author keeps repeating himself, whether it's a certain, they followed him, they followed him, they followed him. He was looking, he was looking, he was looking. You're like, wait a minute, he keeps saying this. And so you want to look and see and examine this. And so a translation like the NIV, which focuses more on readability for mm-hmm. our modern readers, whereas the ESV, the Net Bible, and the New American Standard, focus more on faithfulness to the original text. Mm-hmm. And so the more faithful we are to the original text, the more likely we are to see these kind of repetitions. And the repetitions is the author's way of cluing us in going, hey, I want you to notice that this connects with that and that connects with this. And so now we ask, well, okay, how does it connect? So so I use New American Standard to answer your question. Okay, yeah, good, yeah. And, and those would be called uh, formal equivalent uh, in terms of we, I, I, one thing I learned from my Greek professor, he was a stickler about this. There's no such thing as a word for word translation. So translations could be more wooden or less wooden is, is what he would say. Maybe the more wooden, the translation is, is what he would say in class. Sure. Do, do, do you agree with him? <laughs> Probably one of the most brilliant comments, comments I could ever imagine someone saying <laughs> ever. Okay. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. yeah. So, so, okay. So let's go into uh, Mark 12 and this is going to be paralleled in Matthew 22. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you want to follow, if you've, if you've heard it somewhere else. Uh, so start walking us through this, Rob. Yeah. So what happens is 
Uh, let's go back to Mark 12, uh, verse 12. They were seeking to seize Jesus, and they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left and went away. And then verse 13. They sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Right, skip down to verse 18. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came and began questioning him, saying, Teacher. And so they're, they're going to ask him a, kind of a trick question. And then verse 28. 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that he had answered them well, said, what's the commandment is foremost of all? And so we have three different questions being asked of Jesus by three different groups of people, if you want to mm -hmm. say. And the purpose of these questions is trying to trap Jesus in a statement. Now, the first thing to note about that is Mark is putting together a story, a narrative, and the stories, he, he kind of patches them all together. I know it may be that these three groups of people go, okay. You know, you're out, tap in, our, our, our turn, let's go ask them the next question. It, it may be that they ask them one group, then another group, and another go, hey, you guys try it now. But it may be that on separate occasions or whatever, they ask them these different questions and Mark paste them all together. The point being is that we have these three passages in a row where three different groups of people ask Jesus questions, trying to trap him. Now, each of the groups that ask him a question, the question is kind of befitting of that particular group. So the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, mm -hmm. They ask him a question about the afterlife because we don't even believe in life in the afterlife. This is silly. And let's show you this conundrum that Jesus, you can't even, even you can't answer. All right. The first group is the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, immediately, if you're a first century reader of Mark's gospel, you're going, that's an awfully odd couple. Mm -hmm. right? Remember the old show, The Odd Couple? This is a really odd couple to be asking them, right? And you know why, right, Vinny? Because, I mean, Pharisees and Herodians, they don't, they don't go together. Well, and from what I understand, we don't know a lot about the Herodians, like who they might be, but there's something to do with, they're going to be more sympathetic to what's happening with Rome and Rome's occupation of uh, Judea, whereas the Pharisees obviously are not going to be in support of that. They're, they're longing for God's uh, Messiah to come and for David's throne to be restored once again, so they could make Israel great again. Yes, exactly. So the Herodians are only mentioned in the Bible. The name Herod or Herodians mm -hmm. suggests that they're Roman. And so they're on the side of Rome and the Pharisees are strongly opposed to Roman occupation because only Israel should only be ruled by an Israelite and by a Davidic king. Mm -hmm. But the Pharisees were pragmatic and the Pharisees said, well, we know we can't actually do anything about Roman rule. We don't like it, but we're going to tolerate it. And because we tolerate it, Rome will let us have our temple and keep it and we can keep our sacrifices and keep things going. So as long as we can keep doing the things that we need to do to please God, we're going to kind of tolerate this. But they did not like the Romans at all. So Pharisees and Herodians coming together doesn't make any sense. So they asked Jesus a question, and, and the question has to do with paying taxes. Should we pay taxes or should we not pay taxes? Now, the idea is that this is a conundrum. You can't get away with this one, Jesus, because if you say, you know what, guys, you got to pay taxes, the Pharisees are going to be totally upset at them because... Pharisees don't believe that Rome should be allowed to rule. Mm -hmm. And of course, Jesus being the messianic king, you can't be that and claim pay taxes. If he says don't pay taxes and makes the Pharisees happy, oh, cool, you're on our side on this side. Obviously, it's treason against Rome. And Rome's going to execute you. And this is all great. We, we got you nailed here. And so uh, you're right. What does Jesus say to them? Jesus kind of gives them this response like, oh, never thought of that. Well, because this is like the ultimate trap, right? You literally yeah. you don't have a way out of this. Right. And and death could be on, on for answering mm -hmm. this the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the, the response that Jesus gives <laughs> so when they're asked this question, it's 
you're not swayed by a teacher, you know, is it lawful to pay taxes? Uh, but knowing their hypocrisy. Mm. So there's something that Jesus, like it, it, there's the qualifier in there in terms of how he responds. Uh, he says to them, why put me to the test? Yeah. Uh, and I'm just curious, like, like we're looking at this in terms of studying the Bible. Uh, oftentimes we, and then, you know, teaching people how to study the Bible. When we look at this, is it, is this just simply a test? Is there anything more that we could read from that word or concept? Or is this just literally them testing him in terms of uh, not his theological knowledge, but they're, you know, tra trapping him in a sense. Like, wh why doesn't he say that? Like, why, why are you trying to trap me? Is this another way of stating that? Or what is yeah. significant about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, you know, thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test is probably okay. what Jesus is implying by that. But okay. they're not catching that he means that by it because they don't think he's the Lord God. But that's actually for the third one. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Okay, okay. On the, on the third question. Uh, so that that's it. You shouldn't put the Lord thy God to the test. And you're doing that. What do you, do you understand? What you're doing? And of course, Jesus spoke often in apocalyptic language. We keep wanting to reiterate this. It's not only language of the Book of Revelation. When Jesus tells a parable, it's apocalyptic. Now, remember, apocalyptic means to unveil, but it means to use symbolic language and mysterious language. Sometimes cosmic upheaval languages. The stars, stars are falling from the sky. The moon becomes blood. Uh, things like things like that. But it only unveils what was hidden to those who have ears to hear. And the Pharisees clearly don't have ears to hear. Mm -hmm. That's why it says he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. Mm -hmm. If you want to come after me and follow me, I'll give you the answer to this. All right. So real quick. So while, in, you know, if you go back a couple episodes, we talk about reading apocalypse. Uh, so apocalypse as a genre is going to include many specific things like another worldly being mediating a message to a patriarch of the faith and, and, or in the, in the context of revelation to John, a living man, a prophet. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and there's always going to be certain things that we're going to look for. That's an apocalypse proper, if you will. Correct. Whereas what we're talking about is apocalyptic language. So we're using it very much as an adjective in that way. It's, it's saying it's apocalypse-like, but it's not an apocalypse. Yeah. Apocalyptic in the sense that it has to do with the coming of the kingdom mm -hmm. and revealing how things really are, as opposed to what you think they are. And the way things really are is that God's in control and God's in power. And this is what his kingdom looks like. It's, it's based on love. It's not predicated on power, the way the kingdoms of the world work, et cetera, et cetera. And it uses the symbolic language like parables are, right? The kingdom of God is like. So Jesus then, after he you know, challenges them, like, why are you testing me? He then asks this question, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Right. How is this significant, especially in... John, or not John, in Mark's context, in terms of how he phrases this, like just oh. the question itself before it even gets to, you know, verse 16, why That's is right. this, why is this question? Okay. Because, or, was, and, and even more so if I'm a first century Jewish person, yes, hearing yes. this, what am I thinking? Is this question in it of itself provocative? You're probably thinking, oh my gosh, you just stabbed them in the back and they're, they're walking away with a knife wound in their back because whose inscriptions on the coin? Mm -hmm. Right? And it's going to be Caesar. I, it's Caesar's. Yeah. Which means you shall have no images in my presence, is what the Ten Commandments say. Mm -hmm. uh, literally, in my, and, and God's presence is in Jerusalem. So when Rome began occupying power in Jerusalem, one of the things they had to do in order to maintain peace amongst the Jewish people, they had to agree not to raise any of the Roman flags or standards mm -hmm. up around Jerusalem. Because that's just what you do when you march into a city, like at the, at the Olympics, the American flag and the standard, mm -hmm. that's what goes first. Well, the standard has an image of Caesar on it, and that's blasphemous for a Jewish person. So if you're a Pharisee and you don't believe in Roman occupation and Roman rule or the right, the right to the rule, and you're the stickler for the commandments, 
you shouldn't have an image of the emperor in your pocket. <laughs> so bring me a denarius. Oh, you happen to have one, you hypocrite. Yeah, it, you it, shouldn't it, even it, have one. And it's also communicating that Jesus is saying he does not have this in his pocket. He yeah, has to ask that, yeah, them that, for this thing. Well, that's because he's poor. I, I don't have one, but you do. Yes. So who's the hypocrite now, right? Exactly. Yeah. So if you're reading this, you're like, oh, wow, pretty good, Jesus. A, a good one. <laughs> so right. there's this trap that there's no way out because you have the Pharisees okay. and the Herodians are like, we got you. Like law of excluded middle. It's one of these two and you don't have a way out. And all of a sudden that's, oh, there is a way out. And I actually just used my own gun to blow myself up <laughs> is well, what happened. That, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, I yeah, uh, here's I've, I've got one. Right. Yeah, and, and they shouldn't have one at all. Mm -hmm. All right. And the next thing then is this is. He asked, he then replies and says, okay, whose image is on it? And they're like, well, it's, it's Caesar's image. And Jesus is like, okay, verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, I think most Sunday school classes, most sermons that we heard on this, we think, okay, what Jesus is saying is, hey, give the God what's God's, give the Caesar what's Caesar's. Since the coin has Caesar's image on it, it's Caesar's coin, give it to Caesar. Therefore, Jesus is kind of saying, well, pay taxes, it's no problem at all. The Herodians are happy. The Pharisees are kind of silenced because like, well, actually it is Caesar. It's got his image on it. So I guess we can't complain about that. But that's not what he's saying. Yeah. And there's no way Jesus would be saying this. Psalm 24 verse one says, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. A good Jewish person knows that everything is God's. And I was, he says, okay, here's these two containers. Give the Caesar what's Caesar and give the God what's God's. And actually everything is in the God's bucket. Mm -hmm which means there's nothing left over to give to Caesar. So he's technically saying, yeah, yeah, pay I don't care. This is not a tax issue. The fact is give to God what's God's and give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And he's kind of pacified both groups, but deeply he's, in, he's undermining the, the whole Romans uh, uh, occupation and their, and their whole right to rule. Because technically if the kingdom of God comes in Christ, then actually God's ruler and you should be giving everything to God. Yeah. Uh, this, this summer, I've been spending a lot of time hanging out in uh, political theology land as I've been teaching a class at my own church uh, on this topic. And one of the reasons- a good way to get yourself fired. Just yeah, throw it out there. You, you have yeah. no idea. How, how to lose a job, talk politics in church as a, as a pastor and see where that goes. It, it, I, I was doing a podcast with my co-teacher today for our church, and we were kind of uh, doing a reminiscing kind of last, you know, end of the summer episode recap. And that's the thing. It's like, why would we decide to do this? The idea is to offer it again next year, but who knows if we'll still be around and employed. <laughs> offer it in the summer like you did when when attendance might be at the lower Ex point. Because exactly. You exactly. So one of the resources that uh, you know I gleaned from it, and one of the great things that has come out of the last five or six years of crazy evangelical involvement in politics is the amount of resources and work that's come up uh, where mm -hmm. people have actually started writing on things like Christian nationalism and, 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 and so many other areas. Right. And uh, one of the books that I was reading from was written by a, a pastor named Jonathan Lehman. And he addresses, you know, this passage in his book where we have this faulty idea that, that, that what we think Jesus is teaching is that there's Caesar stuff and then there's God stuff. And then so, and it's, this is even language that we use when it comes to how we view finances, where yeah. you give God your first. That's right. And then as long as you gave him your first, then you could do whatever you want. Everything else is yours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's not a Christian worldview. Right. No. <laughs> like that, that, that's like Christian from the Bible or historically the way it's been viewed. Right. It was awfully and, nice of me to give him 10%, though. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or like or I, I gave you, you or whatever I yeah. gave. 
Yeah, I gave you what you like. I did my job. Like, okay, now it's my money. I'm just giving yeah. you 10%. Exactly. And and so the, the point that Lehman makes is that in the image that he uses, it's not that there's a circle that says Caesar's things and there's a circle that says God's things. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he has a book uh, or in his book, How the Nations Rage, he has, uh, you know, another uh, image that has this giant circle that says God's things. And then there's a little circle in there that says Caesar's things. It's like, no, even Caesar's things are God's things. They're not separate from one another. Uh, ultimately, it's all owned by God. And, and we even see this at the, even the climax of Jesus in the great commission in uh, Matthew 28, when he says, like, all authority on all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously this is the conclusion of his life uh, before the ascension, but we could all say in light of the inauguration of the kingdom of God, whether it's in the beginning of his ministry or at the conclusion after he's been crowned, uh, you know, as, as king on the cross and, and, and glorified in the ascension, it's like, no, it's, it's all God's stuff and his king gets to own it all. Yeah, and, and that's absolutely. the point that we need to really understand and, and recalibrate because it's just been taught wrong. And we've been mm-hmm. given, we've been allowed to be pagans and hedonists in our life in terms of how we view our, our stuff, which as long as I give, as long as I give the God his sacrifice, then I could go along and do whatever I want. And that's mm-hmm. basically how the Roman citizens lived when you had a, a, an ancient deity. They didn't demand fidelity from you. You gave them their sacrifice. And then as long as you gave them their sacrifice, you're good to live how you want. And that's, and that's basically the way many Christians live nowadays It is like, is like a Roman pagan from the first century. That's right. And it's uh, modernism and all that other stuff as well. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to go in this direction even more deeply in in some future podcasts, because you brought up some really good points, but let's not go too far off on that tangent. So let's go now to the second one. And I want to just kind of cover that one briefly. Mm -hmm. The Sadducees come up and ask them a question. It's about marriage and the Sadducees don't believe in in the afterlife. And now the Sadducees, by, by the way, we consider them a religious group, but they're, they're much more political minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're aristocratic. They're mm-hmm. the power. They're, by the way, there were more Sadducees than there were Pharisees. The Pharisees were the minority, but the Pharisees had the power over the people because the Sadducees were, Sadducees were the rich, wealthy, aristocratic power mongers who colluded with Rome and benefited from colluding with Rome. And the, the, the Pharisees had totally no respect for Sadducees and the Sadducees controlled the temple. They controlled the Sanhedrin with the majority of people on it which is the Jewish Supreme Court. Now, the Sadducees only believe in the first five books, mm-hmm. Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they ask them a question about marriage. Well, okay, so here's how it works. If this guy marries a woman and uh, the guy dies and they have no kids and the brother has to marry the woman and give the, the wife a child that belongs to the first brother. But what happens if the second brother dies too without any kids and the third, and then marries the third brother and then the fourth brother, the fifth brother, the sixth brother, the seventh. And so they, then they go, okay, Jesus, this is so silly. In the afterlife, Whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus answers and says, uh, which is kind of, uh, you can see the dagger going in the back. You are mistaken, verse 24. Uh, Is this not the reason that you're mistaken, that you don't understand the scriptures? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the answer, of course, is, yeah, that's the reason why you're mistaken. It's because you don't know the scriptures. So again, it's not this loving, gentle, kind response. It's kind of a dagger in the back. Even stopping right there, like in 23, where it says in the resurrection, when they rise again, it's like, you guys don't believe in the resurrection. Right, right. (laughs) Like like, there's a faulty premise on their end. So they're they're bringing up an illustration of saying, okay, according to your thinking, Jesus, this would be true. And Mm -hmm. this doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Therefore, your thinking of resurrection is actually ridiculous. And he was like, well, (laughs) actually, you're wrong because you don't even know the scriptures. (laughs) Which, by the way, it's just kind of rude almost, right? But, it, yeah. but this is kind of a rabbinical 
leader to leader, profit to profit type of uh, type of speech, by the way. And I don't think this is not something you can take this in your Sunday school classroom. You can take this in your church and be so cynical. Well, I was just going to ask, and let's, let's pause there. Cause I think yeah. this is a really good application point. One of the things that we teach when we teach uh, biblical interpretation is checking to see if something is prescriptive or descriptive. Is it okay. prescribing the way you ought to, uh, you know, be, behave, or, or is this the ethic that you directly pull, or is it describing something? Yeah. How often do we see the way Jesus engaged specifically with religious leaders, where he might have been harsh or or something like that, and then we prescriptively say, "Well, this is what Jesus did, therefore, this gives me liberty to be, you know, you know, harsh with other people." Uh, yeah. So, you, what you're saying to drive the point is, because this was a rabbinic style of teaching within that context, it would have been appropriate for him to respond that way. What this is not doing is giving us permission to just go out and put everyone on blast who we might have a, a disagreement or, or might want to be correcting. Yeah. And my, I would add to that by saying, oh, and by the way, you're not Jesus. So you can't do what Jesus did or the way he did it because you're not taking on the role and title of messianic king uh, in authority, speaking to the na- national leaders mm-hmm. who are responsible for the spiritual, physical well-being of the people. And and national leaders of America's context has nothing to do with mm-hmm. national leaders of, of Israel context prior to the coming of Christ. So it totally doesn't make any sense that you could speak that way, that, the way that Jesus did. Okay, so Jesus respond, replies to them by saying, oh, by the way, there's no such thing as marriage or being given a marriage in heaven. Now, some say, oh, oh, so what happens then is in the afterlife, there's no more marriage. What Jesus is saying is the purpose of marriage and, and is procreation and having children because that's how you further advance the, the kingdom and, and fill, fill in the earth but in the afterlife there's no death mm-hmm. and, and the idea of a, a father and a family's heritage is through the offspring of the children and the children protect and provide for the father and the mother after they become too old to work the land so having progeny land and family were this essential for f- carrying on the national identity but because there's no death in the afterlife, there's no need for procreation. And so therefore, it doesn't matter whose wife she's going to be in that, in that kind of context. And I heard N.T. write on this recently on his podcast, and he was commenting, well, that doesn't mean there's no marriage. It just means that there's no more marrying. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you don't, that you don't have a special relationship with, with your wife now mm-hmm. that you might have uh, in the afterlife just means there's no marrying and, and procreating as a result of that because the, that doesn't happen and the death doesn't happen. All right, now let's move forward. The next one then is, Vinny and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. I said, hey, Vinny, I want to do this podcast on this. The next group comes up to them and they're scribes, uh, lawyers, legal experts, experts in the law. A scribe means that their job is to write and what they write is the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, most notably Deuteronomy. They're legal experts in the biblical law of Deuteronomy. And so they say, Jesus, what commandment is foremost of all? Now, you most of you listening have probably heard this question, and you know what Jesus is going to say, and you've heard it for years and years and years. But have you ever thought about the fact that this can't be a trick question? Because every Jewish child from three years old and up knows the answer. Because the answer is Deuteronomy 6, 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, mm-hmm. and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and they quote that three times a day, mm-hmm. morning, noon, and evening. It's on the doorpost of their home. When they walk in, the Shema is hanging on their, they touch it as they walk in the, door, in the doors of their home. Modern day Jews do this also. So my question is, 
how could what is the greatest commandment be a trick question what the answer is uh let me think uh i'm gonna go with love the lord your god oh i can't believe he got it right guys i mean it's literally it would literally be asking someone like hey do you know the first two words to happy birthday (laughs) (laughs) like it's like it, it's just yeah. that like uh, you don't have to think about that. what song did i sing for you uh, <laughs> exactly oh uh, well happy birthday of course oh right yeah 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 exactly there's nothing trick about this so there has to be something else going on jesus goes on to say and you should love the lord your god verse 30 and then verse 31 he says and the second is and you're like well wait a minute they only asked him what the greatest commandment is mm-hmm. why is he adding a second and isn't he actually going to get in trouble for, asking, for adding a second? Because the first answer is, love the Lord your God. What could be equal with that? Mm-hmm. So why is he adding a second one? And the second one is you shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. So, so Jesus is doing two things here. The first thing is, is he's adding a second commandment. Now, he kind of gets away with adding the second commandment. Because he says there are two, and he calls the second one the second one. So it's like, okay, there's there's one, and then there's two. And you're like, well, I don't know if I like this number two. Uh, because for a Jew, the love of the Lord your God is exclusive. There can be nothing else on this level. So as soon as he says, well, it's number two, he maybe he's not putting it on the same level. All right, we'll let him get away with this. Now, the second reason why that's okay is because the second commandment comes from Leviticus 19. Mm-hmm you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Leviticus is part of Genesis through Deuteronomy, right? It's part of the, the books of Moses. So at least, so the Sadducees can't get upset with them. The fair, all right, it's, it's part of the law. It's part of Levitical law. Okay, all right, we'll get, we're okay with it. Now we're going to come back to that second one in, in, just, in just a minute, because in Luke's gospel, that second one becomes the issue. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So, so we mentioned at the beginning, these three passages or these three questions come from Matthew 22 and Mark 12. And Luke takes it and puts it in a different context in the gospel in Luke chapter 10. Something has to be going on. Jesus has to be doing something funny with this greatest commandment. And they're trying to see if they can trap him in it. In other words, everybody knows what the answer is. So there's no way that's a trick question. The point of it is they think Jesus is answering the question differently. They think he's doing something wrong when he says, love the Lord your God. And they're going to see if they can trap him in it. And the scribe said, you're right, you are a teacher. You've said, right, he is one. There's no one else besides him. And love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength. And to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So they're like, okay, well, we didn't catch him in it. Mm-hmm. But what were they trying to catch him in? Mm-hmm. How was this a trick question? Right, so now what's interesting is most people, they don't think about that. They just think, oh, it's a trick question. And oh, he answered them great. It's like, folks, this is like saying, you know, what does John 3.16 say? It's like, well, mm-hmm. I think most Christians can quote that. Oh, Jesus knew that Bible verse. Dang, and I thought we had him. <laughs> Something's going on. What's interesting is in Matthew 22 and here in Mark 12, the next thing that comes up, it says in verse 35, it says, and Jesus began a- um, asking them a question, uh, saying, how is it? That the scribes say, and now note the scribes were the one that were asking mm-hmm. the question, the legal experts. I'm in verse 35. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ or the Messiah, right? That's who Jesus was claiming to be, is the son of David. Now you're like, well, what do you mean? Of course he's the son of David. The idea is that the Messiah will inherit David's throne, 
Second Samuel 7. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And, and exactly. Second Samuel 7, Ezekiel 37. Mm-hmm. I'll raise one up like, like, like David. Mm-hmm. And then he says, and David, yet David himself, verse 36, said in the Holy Spirit, and what he means by that is he's quoting scripture that you mm-hmm. agree was inspired by God. And he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, which, by the way, is the most often quoted mm-hmm. psalm in the entire New Testament. And Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David said of the Messiah. So he's quoting Psalm 110 as though this is about the Messiah. And then he says, the Lord said to my Lord. All right. So there's two Lords there, right? Mm -hmm. The first Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh. Yep. The Lord said to, and, and David speaking. So the question is, who is the my Lord? And the my Lord must be the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So the Lord said to my Lord, and like, wait a minute, if the Messiah is David's son, which makes him lesser than David, how could David call him Lord? Which makes him the exalted or superior to David. Mm -hmm. And verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. In what sense is he his son? And the crowd enjoyed listening to him. There's no answer. Mm -hmm. They, They just leave it be. And here's the secret. What Jesus was doing with the greatest commandment, he was saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And just earlier, he told the rich ruler, he says, look, if you want to be my disciple, go sell your possessions and follow me. Mm-hmm. Do what I say. I am the Lord your mm-hmm. God, mm-hmm. whom you are to worship and honor with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes thought he might be saying something like that. And they were going to see if he would acknowledge it. Are you, going to, are you actually saying that you are the Lord God that we're supposed to honor? And Jesus is like, uh, figure it out. Mm-hmm. David said to the Christ and calls him Lord. Why are you surprised that I'm being called Lord? Even David called me Lord but they didn't have ears to hear. So they couldn't figure it out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a trick question because they're trying to see, are you claiming to be the Lord or not? Cause everybody knows what the greatest commandment is. Are you claiming to be the Lord? Or is that what you're doing? And Jesus is like, well, yeah, the greatest commandment is love your Lord, your God. And you probably should do what I say, but he doesn't answer it that way. He quotes Psalm 110 to let David say it that way. And they're like, what is he saying? But let's go back to the other question again, because what I wanted to point out was that in the third episode, the scribes come up and ask Jesus what's apparently a trick question, but the question doesn't look like it's a trick question because every three-year-old child in Israel knows the answer, even then and even now. It's, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, you should worship him. But then he adds the second commandment. And like, well, why are you adding a second one? You're only asked about one and adding a second one's just going to get you in trouble anyways. Mm-hmm. So now we'll go to Luke 10. And see how this picks up in Luke 10. And this kind of confirms the hypothesis. Jesus had been teaching this. And he'd been going around saying this on on probably on many occasions. And they knew he was doing something funny with it, but they weren't sure what he was doing. So in Luke 10, verse 25, it says a lawyer, which is a a scribe, Mm -hmm. a, a legal expert, right? It says, stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do and inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And then verse 27, note, 
the guy, the lawyer is saying what Jesus had said in Mark 12. Mm-hmm. The lawyer says, love the Lord your God, while your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the, we already mentioned, well, why would Jesus add a second commandment that's only going to pose problems? But he's obviously been saying this enough that the lawyer is going and quotes Jesus by adding the second commandment himself. Mm-hmm. All right. So well, the first point was he was doing something funny with it because he was actually claiming himself to be the Lord God that you should be worshiping. And that's why he quotes Psalm 110 and David saying that uh, afterwards, both in Matthew and, and in Luke's gospel. All right. Now the lawyer is going, I think you're doing something funny with the second commandment also. Because he goes on, and then he asked Jesus a question. He says, okay, great. And Jesus said, well, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. There's your two commandments. You're good. Of course, do this and you will live means worship me, right? Because I'm the Lord, your God. And I'm not sure he's ready to do this. But then the guy, it says, and wishing to justify himself in verse 29. I'm in Luke chapter 10, verse 29. And he said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on and tells the famous story or the parable of the Good Samaritan. And again, what we said earlier, he's speaking in apocalyptic language, meaning he's using um, figures and symbols and figurative language, which is what a parable is, to unveil something, but it only is unveiled to those who have ears to hear. To the disciples, he was explaining everything privately. He tells, what does this parable mean? The Pharisees and scribes and lords, they don't actually understand the parables. If you really want to know, I'll tell you what it means. So he tells the parable. And the parable is, look, this guy's on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And, it's a, and by the way, it's a 17-mile stretch, 17-and-a-half-mile stretch, from about 800 feet below sea level in Jericho to 2,600 feet above sea level in Jerusalem. It's a pretty high, it's a very steep grade. And if you walk that road, and stretches of that road are available, are accessible today. So if you're taking a tour of the land, you can park your vehicle and kind of walk over the hill a little bit and, and see what this road was like. And there's a lot of places where bandits could be hiding out. And one of the common things a bandit might do is have like bandit A, hey, you pretend that you're injured, you lay on the ground. And when so-and-so gets off his horse or camel or whatever else to help you, that's when we'll attack. Mm. So the priest walks by and says, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to help him. And he passes by on the other side, verse 31. And a Levite also came to the place and he passed by on the other side. Now we think, oh, those guys are horrible religious people. How could they not care for someone? But if you know what's going on, mm-hmm. they're kind of being prudent. Yeah, because they could be this could be a, a gimmick and, and I, I, I might not be safe. I'm not taking a risk. But then just but then a Samaritan. And again, knowing the context, we won't go into too much detail, but Samaritans are the hated neighbors up north mm-hmm. who are this, this is always subject to interpretation. But from a Jewish perspective, they're half Jewish, mm-hmm. which makes them not Jewish at all. They claim to be the true Jewish people. And have the true t- temple up in the north. Remember, we Jews worship in you Jews worship in Jerusalem, but we worship in this t- in this place. She, she's a Samaritan woman, right? And uh, uh, John four, sorry, John four, yeah, and John four. Right, so Samaritans are hated by the Jewish people. Now, you would have almost asked me, like, what's a Samaritan doing here? Because this isn't this isn't a road that you would even expect a Samaritan on, because Jerusalem to Jericho, you're kind of this is Jewish area. Jews take this road because they're actually, the irony is, is Jews travel this road to go around Samaria to get mm-hmm. to Jerusalem. If you wanted to go from Galilee to Samaria and go straight through uh, Galilee to Jerusalem, you go straight through, straight through Samaria, but the Jews go around it. And the, way, and the road around it actually takes you through, through um, uh, Jericho. 
So having a Samaritan on this road is like, oh, we actually have taken this road to get away from you people. And all of a sudden here are one of you guys on this road. So the Samaritan goes by and, and he sees the man in need. Uh, it says he, he bandages wounds, put oil on his wounds, which is oil was probably medicine, uh, wine on them. And he uh, brought him on his own beast, took him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii, which is the day's wages. He gave it to the man in charge and said, hey, uh, spend these. And if you, if you need more, I'll repay you when I get back. And Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And he said, that the scribe says, or the, the lawyer says, uh, the one who showed mercy on him. Wouldn't even name him. How demeaning it is to not be named. Mm -hmm. So Jesus turns around and says, okay, good, go and do the same. And what he's pointing out is, you're, when you ask, to whom shall I be a neighbor? What you're asking actually is, is who do I have to love? Mm -hmm. So can you help? I, I'm willing to follow the Lord, my God, although I'm not sure that I'm going to follow you actually claiming to be the Lord God that I'm supposed to love. And I'm willing to love my neighbor, but tell me who that is so I know who to love and who not to love. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, actually, you're asking the wrong question. The question should be, to whom am I a neighbor? Mm -hmm. To whom am I? And the answer is you love everybody like that Samaritan did. And so all of a sudden we go, oh, I thought you were doing something like this, Jesus, because you, Jesus, you know what you've been doing all along? You've been saying Rome ain't the bad guys. And no, we can't tolerate that. We want a kingdom with a Messiah who will boot the Romans out, establish a Jewish kingdom and punish our enemies. Now, again, understand this. If, if you're Jewish, you go back 2000 years and you were slaves in Egypt. After that, you got released and you had some wars with the Canaanites and some problems with them for a number of years. And then, then the Syrian, Assyrians came in and conquered you after the Philistines did their things here and there. And then after the Assyrians conquered you, the Babylonians conquered you. Mm -hmm. And then the Medes and the Persians conquered you. And then the Greeks conquered you. And then the Romans, and you had a brief reign of Jewish mm -hmm. independence during the time of the Maccabees. And then the Romans, you've been occupied under foreign oppression for 2,000 years. And now Jesus comes along and says, I'm the Messiah. And oh, by the way, we're going to include the Gentiles and the Romans in it. You're like, no, it's not mm -hmm. for them. They've oppressed us for 2,000 years. Punish them, Jesus. Like, no, no, no. You're asking the wrong question. Yeah, yeah, you have to love them too. And like, no, can't be part of this kingdom then. So he's doing something funny with a commandment. That's why it was a trick question. What he was doing funny with it was, he was saying, I am the Lord, your God, whom you're supposed to love. Oh, really? Yeah. Even David called me Lord. Hmm. Oh, right. Oh, ding, ding, hmm. ding, ding, ding. But they weren't willing to admit that. And he added a second commandment. And the second commandment is, if you love the Lord, your God, you will also love those whom he has created right? You will love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, cool. Let's define neighbor. She's like, no, no, you're asking the wrong question. Because hmm. you want to define neighbor, like the Pharisees wanted to define neighbor, and it wouldn't include a poor Israelite. It wouldn't include a widow. It wouldn't include an orphan. It wouldn't include uh, the, the needy. It wouldn't include the handicapped. It wouldn't, it, you would even exclude Jewish people because of their status. And she's like, hmm. no, no, my kingdom includes them. And in fact, since you invited guests won't come to the meal, go out to the highways and the byways because many will come from east and west and feast with me at the table of, east, of Abraham. And that means Gentiles also. Hmm. And those are words we're going to kill you for. So this is much deeper, much more provocative. And obviously the meaning of it now becomes, you know, taking this application before I finish preaching my sermon here mm -hmm. <laughs> is the fact that, yeah, you need to love Jesus so much that you sell everything and come follow. See, the rich man wasn't actually willing to love the Lord, his God. 
mm-hmm. because he wasn't willing to sell his possessions, give them to the poor and follow Jesus. And the fact that he wouldn't sell and give to the poor means you wouldn't love your neighbors yourself either. So let's, I mean, I think application is, it, it, we, we dissected all that stuff. That's great. But if you don't get to an application, yeah, why do right. we just do it? Um, and I, I, like Luke 10 just provides such a great application point on so many levels. Mm-hmm. So if, if I'm a Jewish person, I know the Shema, I know Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. I'm familiar with uh, Leviticus 19 and, and the holiness code and everything mm-hmm. that is happening there. So I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. My neighbor, though, in that context, in the Torah context, is going to be fellow Hebrews, right? Correct. Although later the prophets do clarify by saying the alien that resides among you. Mm-hmm. The sojourner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so that it does include the, like, uh, you know, Uriah the Hittite. Yeah, David, mm-hmm. you probably shouldn't send him on the front lines and kill him because that's violating Leviticus 19. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And the, the Ten Commandments too. So there's an aspect of, okay, and Jesus expands this and it's like, yeah, literally who is your neighbor? It's like anyone <laughs> it's like, that, that's just like, he could have very simply just said like, who is my neighbor? It's anyone who exists. Is your neighbor, right? How then, because uh, there's a bit, a bit of a nuance though. And so we're not discounting that. That's legitimately 100%. Like that's what Jesus commands us to do. Right. In your book, uh, These Brothers of Mine, you argue the point that in Matthew 25, in the Olivet Discourse, when it, it talks about how, uh, you know, how, how you treat these brothers of mine is how you're treating Jesus. Right. So where does the ethic lie in terms of, we love all people, all people are our neighbor, but then there is something that we recognize that's special and different about fellow followers of Jesus. Like how, how, how would you maybe define this too? Is it just two sides of the same coin? Is it saying, yeah, we love all, but there's always a preference to how we treat Christian brothers. Uh, you know, it, just how, like, if I have one loaf of bread and my son is hungry and my neighbor's son is hungry, like, do I, do I just feed whoever, or do I have it, you know, a, 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 obligation to feed my son first before like what does that look like how does that play yeah i wouldn't go that far so if you're talking about like on a personal family level of of your actual nuclear family yeah Mm -hmm. you should feed your own family first before feeding your neighbor at the same time however you might still feed your neighbor and sacrifice food for yourself maybe not for your kids but Mm -hmm. you're going to figure out how that works how that ethic actually works but we do kind of have this obligation to our nuclear family now, you could try to extend that to the church and say the church is this nuclear family. We're the household of God. I don't think we do that. I, think, I don't think we make those distinctions. You're special. You're not special. You're chosen. Mm-hmm. As some people have this theology of the chosen and the elect ones, et cetera. What I was trying to point out there in the, in the book was saying this is if we love God, then we love his people. Mm-hmm. And, by, and, and we manifest love for God by manifesting love for his people. Now, within the church... That love for one another, which doesn't have, it doesn't have uh, borders. It doesn't say, well, we only love those within the church. We love mm-hmm. everyone. Mm-hmm. But within the context of the church is where it's specifically going to be manifested often. Although an outsider comes in, great, you're welcome to be part of this also. And as we manifest that love for one another, that care for one another, or maybe looking at this like in the book of Acts, mm-hmm. where they were living as a community and caring for one another's needs, that has this witness to the, to the world. They'll know you're Christians. They'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. Mm-hmm. The way you love manifests the fact that you are the embodiment of Christ on the earth to the nations. So I wouldn't make a distinction of we love one another in the church with some level and then everybody else at another level. No, mm-hmm. we love everybody equally. 
but the fact of the, the, that we love everyone equally manifests the fact that we actually love the Lord our God. Because if we didn't love the Lord our God, then we wouldn't love, especially even his people. And this literally becomes a Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 27 image of God stuff. Like the, 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 the point of Adam and Eve being created in the image of God was not merely to communicate that we, since God loves, we can love. And since God feels compassion, that's, that's usually how it's properly described is like these, these emotional attributes that we have that God has. It's, it's primarily saying, no, I am reflecting the image of God, just like any image would be reflective of a God in the ancient Near East. And I'm actually, uh, as, a, as a human being, reflecting this unseen God. And so when, when I treat the God, the, sorry, when I treat the world good in terms of being the person who is keeping and uh, guarding the, the the garden, right? When I'm when I'm doing the things well, when I'm uh, having mastery over the animals by naming them and and overseeing them well, when I'm tending to the garden well, the world looks at me and says, "Wow, you are doing a great job. You must be reflecting a good God." Yeah, exactly. That, that's what God looks like, mm-hmm. and that's why this goes in other conversations that we'll have in the future why are there so many stories of Jesus in the gospels about healing and doing miracles and teaching these, these things? If the gospel is all about me being saved and going to heaven when I die. And the answer is no, it's not what the gospel is all about. It's about what the kingdom of God is. And Jesus was doing the works of the kingdom. And I was saying, okay, now you guys go do these things also. Cause when you do these things is when you manifest what God looks like, right? When, when you love one another, you'll manifest yourself as sons of God. Because what a son means is you do the things of, of, of what your parent does. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's why if you love one another, you'll manifest to the world that you are my disciples. Because that's what I do. I love. Now, we don't take that and say, okay, love one another stops there. Because as we go through the scriptures, and Luke 10 is an example of that, we've, we realize, oh, loving one another actually means everyone. Mm-hmm. We, just, we just manifest this love to everyone. And I think, man, that starts to speak really, really loudly. Uh, to the way we do church, uh, the way we post on Facebook. Because I think if, if you post your political views on Facebook, that's fine. You have a right to them. But if you do your political views on Facebook in a, such a way that you make the other person the enemy or the other person the whatever it is, that they're just idiots, that, is that love? Did you actually love and respect them? Mm-hmm. I know if, if I, hey, Vinny, I think there's something I need to speak to you about because I, I think you're an error on this. And I think it's, it's detrimental to your walk in Christ. Okay, that could be a loving thing if it's done right in a private context with humility, et cetera. But calling somebody out on Facebook isn't loving, mm-hmm. most likely. And it makes the church look like arrogant, know-it-alls who don't care about the other. And that's not, that's not what Christ looks like. That's not, that's not what this is about. It's about showing the world what Jesus looks like mm-hmm. by loving the way Jesus loved. And how did he love? Well, he went to the cross for him. Are you willing to lay down your life for a Republican? Are you willing to lay down, lay down your life for a Democrat? Are you willing to lay down your life for an immigrant? Mm-hmm. Are you willing to lay down your... No, I, 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 I can't let them in our country because they're going to take away my financial well-being. They're going to take jobs that belong to me and my kids. You know, maybe that's true. Um, but I think Jesus said, uh, who are you trusting in? Why do you worry about tomorrow? To, you know, to look at the birds of the air. If I feed them, will I not feed you too? All of a sudden we go, oh... Well, maybe, maybe I should stop and think, hey, okay, all right, so some of these Ill- Ill- illegal people are criminals, da, 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 all right, maybe so, but some of them are fleeing. Who wants to leave their home? Who yeah. does? 
go to a culture with you might not even know the language, might not know the people, might, might, you don't know if you're going to be what, you might not survive the journey. Why would you take these journeys? Because there's no hope where you're at. I'd rather risk life and death than stay where I'm at because my daughters are going to get stolen and raped. Yeah. Oh, okay, you know what? We got to find a way to let these people in, right? Mm-hmm. And okay, we got to figure out how to do it. I don't know. That's what the church did in the early centuries was we welcomed these people and we started, we started orphanages and, and homes. I think we need to think about that because mm-hmm. I think that's what this actually looks like. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and just in general, just not qualifying. This is, it's so relevant to modern day conversations, especially when it comes to issues like that. Like, mm-hmm. well, I love them as, but are they this or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what's their stat, how'd they get here, whatever. And, and this is the point that Jesus is making is like, okay, well, who is my neighbor? is it only the legal people <laughs> like is it only like it's like jesus making the point it's like yeah it's, it's all of them yeah like, yeah yeah and, and and take the syrian refugee issue that happened six seven eight nine ten years ago number one a large percentage of syrians are christians yes all right and so even these brothers these are our brothers and sisters in christ they're fleeing their countries because they have no hope of anything else at all they're extremely well-educated, by the way, many of them holding master's degree, which actually would benefit our society because we're bringing a trained, educated people into our society. They actually create and manufacture jobs. And we're like, no, 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 some of them are terrorists. Well, all right, guess what? Our government's job, any government's job, is to actually vet the people out mm-hmm. and make sure they don't let terrorists in. The United States government actually has one of the best vetting processes in place of any government in the history of the world. So if they... But we're like, don't let any of them in. Like, no, vet them, vet them and vet them well. Mm-hmm. But let them in because where else are they going to go? They're going to die. How would Jesus approach this? And I think when the church shuts its doors and shuts the doors of, its own, of, its, of the country that they're in, are we manifesting the love of Christ? Are we manifesting our own greed, our own personal security? I might be uncomfortable. I'm not sure if I want these people in my neighborhood. I'm not sure if, if they're going to take our jobs really? That's actually what we're doing? They're dying. They've left everything they had and they have nothing but the things on their backs and they're traversing dangerous waters across the Mediterranean. They're they're willing to die on a raft than stay where they're at. Something's going on here. Mm -hmm. And then the largest refugee crisis in the history of the world is happening on our watch. Mm -hmm. And what are we doing about it? And, and I don't and, know what the answer is. Well, and then like, that's like, political policy to say that. I'm just saying the church should be at least advocating, saying, "Well, whatever you guys do, let as many in as you can, please." Well, and complex issues usually have complex yeah, solutions, right? right? Like, and, and we try to make just this so simple, and it's not. And that's the thing, even even for the people, because I'm thinking of people in my own context who have really strong convictions, even on on topics like immigration, and a lot of them just need to be. We, we need to work yeah. through this, I think, as a Absolutely. church in general, because this is something that um, it's not new, but we're finally having to really deal with it on so many different levels. And even I, I would even encourage people, regardless of where you come down on this issue, mm-hmm. whether it's more of just like, hey, let them in, we'll take them or, hey, no, we really need to, you know, be be more diligent about things. Wherever you end up landing, make sure that you go through a deliberate process and you're processing that in a Jesus ethic kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it is not, there's not a, I don't think there's a right answer in this. Right. Uh, you know, we, we could use wisdom to arrive at different answers, but there could be, there's a wrong way of arriving at that. Uh, and even if two people have the same exact conclusion, one of them could get there out of bigotry or fear or wanting to maintain greed. Uh, you know, I need more for me. It's like, man, the way you get there matters. 
and, and because that's ultimately probably reflecting the way you view people who look differently than you. Mm-hmm. What we wanted to do tonight then was just kind of give you a taste of saying, hey, look, as we go into the gospel stories, we want you to see that there's actually something deeper going on. It's more revolutionary, more provocative, more intense. What questions should we be asking? And so we're going to be doing some podcasts on these topics as well. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks as well, we're going to have some updates on Afghanistan uh, and other parts of the world too. And then we'll kind of continue on with this. So I hope, I hope you guys had fun. I did. I don't know about you, Vinny. And, uh, it was all right. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. It was, it was okay. We'll, <laughs> we'll edit as much as we can and see if we can make this work. I'm going to ask for some of my money back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> So. All right, guys. Hey, hope everyone has a great day. We'll we'll uh, catch you guys soon. And uh, yeah, th- this was this was good. Go back and reread through Mark twelve again uh, to everyone, and and see if if you could recall the things that Rob was teaching through in terms of identifying why these questions were happening. Don't don't just say, oh wow, that was an interesting uh, topic, but but make sure that you're you're actually can you articulate that? Can you take someone else through that? Because that's an important aspect, I think, of grasping what the text is saying there. That's right. One more thought. Hey, if you're listening to this live 2021, sometime in early September, uh, I'm going to be doing a Zoom Bible study class on Wednesday nights. Go to the contact me page on determinedtruth.com, fill that out, and let us know if you want to be part of that Bible study on Wednesday nights. Uh, We'll be recording that, hopefully, and getting that posted. And then if you're listening to this a year later, 2022, 2023, 2024, no, 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 actually Jesus returns in 2023, so 2024 wouldn't happen. <laughs> okay, just kidding. We're hopefully going to be putting videos together on YouTube with courses. And we're, what we're going to focus on is we're going to start with what is the gospel? Uh, how do we engage in these issues of culture and politics, et cetera, et cetera? And the answer is, well, we first have to have the context of what the gospel is, what the kingdom of God is. And so we're going to be walking through the gospel of Mark and answering and asking kind of these questions on a slow basis and kind of opening our eyes to some of these really fun passages and, and, and insightful scriptures. So that's the plan. Absolutely. All right. Until we see you later, I will see you tomorrow night because we're going to be doing a fantasy football draft. So That's I'll right. See you. That's right. <laughs> All right, everyone else. We'll see you guys soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.